0: You know, if I look a little more tan than normal, that's because I just got back from a little vacation with, with my family. And I was in the sun a lot. We, we go to South Padre occasionally and we like to, uh, to fish. We're just a fishing family. We don't do the deep sea stuff, like we're not that hardcore, you know. We go right out in the bay, you're talking like three or four or five feet of water, and we, we drift fish. We use live shrimp and it's just, I love it. I've been doing it since I was a kid. And, and you never know what you're going to catch out there. It's just amazing. And, and in fact, this year we had one of our best trips ever. Uh, every day we came back with something like we weren't expecting. Like, for example, my wife caught one of the biggest black drums I've ever seen. Look at that thing. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's almost as big as she, as she is. And, you know, if, if that's how you guys, you know, if, you, know you have a good one, a one to keep. If she can bait a hook and catch fish like this, right, you hang on to that one. Uh, also, you know, we don't catch a lot of sharks out there because it's, it's such shallow water, but I caught a, a pretty big bonnethead shark. It's one of the only few that I've ever even seen out there. It was an amazing experience. And my buddy Bert said my face is like equal parts excitement and fear, and that, that would sum it up pretty well. I could not wait to put it back in the water. But just in case you think we only catch big fish, um, I also caught this, this little guy. Uh, and that's, that's not bait. Okay. That's the, the shrimp that was on that hook was bigger than that. I don't know what he did with the fish, with the shrimp. He may have eaten it all. And then I got him, but, um, uh, yeah, that takes some skill to hook a mouth that small pretty much. But we, we drift fish, like I said. So, you know, when you're, when you're not drifting, fishing like that is miserable. I don't know if you've ever done it, but when there's no wind and it's perfectly calm out there, it's so hot. You have these little gnats that get all over you. You can't cast very far because you don't have wind at your back. It creates line tangles and problems. And you never really get into new territory. Like if, if you're in a spot where the fish aren't biting, you're just stuck there until you fire up the motor and, and move, you know. So no wind is no good. You, you need to drift. And, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking about what I'm going to be talking about this weekend and how, how it relates to <laughs> what we experienced last week uh, when it comes to drifting. But it, it occurs to me that most of the time, uh, drifting isn't good. So, so like a lot of us in every area of your life, I bet these things I'm about to say are true, like we tend to drift. It's kind of our, our natural, you know, h- human experiences. No matter what area of your life you're talking about, you're talking about a diet. Like when's the last time that you stuck to a diet for longer than, you know, like a month or whatever. Like you start with good intentions, but eventually you kind of drift back into, maybe it happens all at once or maybe it happens gradually, but we drift kind of back into our old, Habits, our old cycles, or exercise is kind of the same way. How about financially? Like you have the best of intentions when it comes to finances. You get your act together, you have a budget, and you're trying to save, and maybe you're doing some envelope systems or whatever. Eventually, most of us kind of start drifting back into our old bad habits. What about relationships, especially marriages? I mean, this year, I'll have been married 21 years. I can tell you from experience, and if you're married, you know this, it's so easy in your relationship with your spouse to kind of slowly drift kind of into lazy cycles and not being intentional. And before you know it, there's some intimacy missing in your relationship with your spouse. Like you've kind of drifted apart. It's just natural, it happens. And if you're a Christian, if you're, you know consider yourself to be a christ follower i can almost guarantee you you at times drift in your relationship with god maybe you think back to when you first committed your life to christ you know you were you were on fire like you everything was awesome and then eventually you know life happens that 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 light gets a little more dim you start to drift maybe back into some of your old ways And if we're not careful, our relationship with God can turn into this back and forth of feeling really connected and close to God and just on fire and then drifting away from Him and back and forth we go. A lot of mountaintop experiences and then valleys. We all drift. And we're not alone. In fact, most of the major players in in your Bible, the characters we read about in church history, they drift as well. I want to highlight one of them today. We're going to talk about David. You remember David, right? The Old Testament, David, King David. But David wasn't always king. David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of eight sons. It was you know, the, the, the most humble of beginnings when it, came, it comes to, to David. He was like the smallest, the runt of the family. He was in charge of keeping the sheep. He was a shepherd boy. And in 1st Samuel 16 you have Samuel who is God's uh, anointed prophet of the time. God sends him to the house of Jesse to look at his eight sons and his job was to anoint one of them to be the next king. And he passes up all of the most obvious candidates, right? And he gets all the way to David. And he anoints David. David's going to be the next king of Israel. God's hand was on David from the very beginning. He kind of prospered in in all he did. He ended up being a musician who played for King Saul. He ended up being King Saul's armor bearer eventually. It seems like he split his time between the, the palace and the field, tending his sheep. Until that one fateful day when David finds himself near a battlefield between the Israelites and the Philistines. You know this story, right? You have this Philistine warrior, this giant, a nine foot tall dude named Goliath that's out in the middle of this field, just letting the Israelites have it, like mocking them, mocking their God. And everyone's terrified. Like all the Israelites best warriors, they want nothing to do with Goliath. Then David walks up and it's amazing, right? He, He takes one look and he's like, who is this Philistine that's defying the living God, you know? And it's like something out of a movie. Like, he, he can't wear the armor because he's too small. He can't carry a weapon because he's too weak. He gets some stones together and he marches down to meet Goliath on the, on the, on the battlefield. The rest is history, right? He kills Goliath. He, he becomes very, very popular. He's known as this great warrior, Fearless. They even sing songs about him and Saul, this doesn't go very well with Saul. Saul's super jealous of David and this is a very long story short, but Saul wants to kill David. He chases him all over the place trying to kill him. David runs for his life, he's hiding, but eventually Saul is killed in battle and David becomes the next king of Judah and eventually the king of all of Israel. And again, he has this reputation of just being a fearless warrior a man of integrity, and even a man after God's own heart. But, but something happens. When when David is around 50 years old, he, he makes his most infamous decision as king, and it changes everything. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, and all the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, in this this point in in his his kingdom, like they're just smoking everybody. Like they're having all the success. They're conquering uh, armies and taking land. And it seems to me like when he was supposed to be out to war, he stays back, he sends Joab with the army. It seems to me maybe David has gotten a little bit lazy. You know, maybe He's got a little too comfortable. Maybe he started to drift a little bit. And then he makes the worst decision of his life. You might know how the rest of this story goes. He's on the roof of the palace, and he looks and sees Bathsheba. He's the wife of one of his most trusted military leaders, Uriah, who's off at war fighting. He calls for Bathsheba. He sleeps with her. She ends up pregnant. He starts trying to cover his tracks. Calls Uriah in off the battlefield to to be with his wife. But Uriah has too much integrity for that, so he refuses. Eventually, David has him killed, sends him to the front lines where the, the battle is the fiercest, and Uriah is killed in battle, all to cover. His tracks. And then David, who God had been with his whole life, who had done everything right, David's life falls apart. His world comes crashing down around him. He undermined his credibility, his legacy. I mean, think about this. What else do you know about David the king? King David, not the shepherd boy David, but King David. I mean, this is pretty much it. This this one horrible decision that he paid for for the rest of his life. I mean, things went terrible for him after this point. The, The baby dies. I mean, his family is just constant chaos, tragedy after tragedy. But before all that, before the consequences, when David is still kind of in the middle of his decision and he feels like maybe he got away with something, David is visited by Nathan. Nathan was God's prophet at that time. God sends Nathan with a message for David. He calls David out, confronts him with his own sin, and David is shattered. I mean, he's broken. It's, it's almost like his eyes are just now open to what's been happening. I mean, think about all the time that had passed from the time he went up. He chose not to go to, to, to war. He goes up on the roof and all the bad decisions and, and Uriah back and forth. And he ends up the murder and all this stuff. So much time had passed. It's like all of a sudden David's eyes are open to his own sin. And he can't believe how far he had drifted. Have you experienced something like that? He didn't know how he got there. He was broken over his own sin. Just completely shattered. And in Psalm 51, we have this this prayer of repentance between David and God. In verse 1, he says this to God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me for my sin. He's broken over his own sin. He turns, runs back to God, and just begs God to forgive him. I have a question for you today. When is the last time you were broken over your sin? When was the last time you were truly broken? over your own sin, over your own rebellion? And I realize this is an uncomfortable question, but I think it's one that we need to lean into today. Think about it. When was the last time? Church, our, uh, I don't need to tell you this. You, you see the news, you're living it, you're experiencing it, just like all of us, but our, our world is on fire, this is just an unprecedented time to be alive, I mean the things that we're seeing, our world, our country (laughs) needs a move of God, we need God to do something, And time and time again in church history, if you do some some research of church history and and revivals that happen over and over and over again, God, in times like this, moves in people's hearts. He stirs their hearts. He moves people back to repentance, to, to, to be broken over their sin and to prayer. Revival breaks out and things change. It's happened over and over again. We, as individuals... You and I, we need revival in our own life, in our own heart. What what is revival? Revivals, you know, can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm going to use the definition from a a book called Fresh Encounter by by Henry Blackaby, just talking about revival. And this is the way they define it in the book. It says, revival is a divinely initiated work in which God's people pray, repent of their sin, And return to a holy, spirit-filled, obedient love relationship with God. Now, revivals, you know, they they can result in people getting saved, but this is talking about believers. You and I, if you call yourself a Christian, revival is something that God initiates. He he stirs our hearts. And we're we're drawn to pray, to repent of, of our sin, to be broken over our own sin. And return to a holy, set-apart, spirit-filled, obedient love relationship with God. Not called back to more church attendance or more religious rituals, but back to a relationship with him. A love relationship with him where we're obeying him, listening for him to, to speak to us day by day, step by step. We need that today. We need that in our own lives. We need that in our country The world needs God to move. And we've seen him do it over and over and over again. Just a few examples. The first uh, Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening. This is the 17 and 1800s in England and the American colonies. And then in Wales in the early 1900s. Let me tell you a little story about this one. In the 1900s in Wales, there was a guy named Evan Roberts. And he found himself just deeply concerned about the spiritual condition of his country. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm a little bit deeply concerned about the spiritual condition of my country. I hope you are too. But Evan Roberts, God starts stirring his heart. And he goes to this church meeting and there's an evangelist there preaching. And the evangelist ends his meeting with this prayer. He says, Lord, bend us. Lord, bend us. And for some reason that strikes a chord with Evan Roberts, and he prays that prayer over and over again, Lord, bend us, Lord, bend us, and God sets his heart on fire, and he goes to his pastor, and he asks, can I preach a sermon, and the pastor says, no, <laughs> but you can stay after church if you want, maybe some people stick around, you can preach after church, so he's like, deal, and so he does, he hangs out after the, the, the service is over, 17 people stay to hear what Evan has to say, And these are the the four pillars of his message that day. He, he tells them, we must put away any unconfessed sin, put away any doubtful habit, promptly obey the Spirit and publicly confess Christ. And look what happens next. All 17 people pledged to follow these guidelines. The Holy Spirit began to work powerfully in this group. Soon, crowds were gathering at the church each evening. God's people began to repent of their sin and renew their relationship with him unbelievers came to the services many of them put their faith in Christ. Roberts and other preachers spread out across wells to speak in churches and they saw revival spread within two months. seventy thousand people had become Christians within six months a hundred thousand people had been born again and added to their churches. And it all started, get this, it all started when God drew 17 of his people back to him. 17 people back, not saved 17 people. He drew 17 believers back to himself, back to prayer, back to repentance, set their heart on fire. Once they returned to God in complete surrender, their community, then their nation, and ultimately the world felt the Impact. 17 Christians returning back to God with repentant hearts devoted to prayer in complete surrender. 17. And God changed the world through it. He did it then, He can do it again. Another one in the 1900s. In Los Angeles, the early 1900s, Azusa Street. William J. Seymour, an African-American pastor who was blind in one eye, he tried to get a pastoral job at a church there. And after he got done preaching, they locked him out of the building. So he started prayer meetings in a house nearby. God moved. His spirit fell on them. Eventually, the interracial crowds became so large, they moved into a Methodist church at 312 Azusa Street where daily prayer meetings continued for three years. Then in the 70s, the Jesus movement. It emphasized turning from drugs, sex, and radical politics and instead to taking the Bible at face value and finding Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Not surprisingly, this revival spread to college campuses all over the country, most notably 1970 Asbury College and Wilmore, Kentucky. Within a week, the revival had spread throughout the entire Country. There were more of these in the mid 90s. And, and let me ask you this what's the common denominator in all of these stories of revival? God drawing his people back to him, them being broken over their sin, repentant hearts, and then devoted to prayer. And I'm telling you, he's doing it again now. I don't know how much you've heard about this, but there's something happening in California. The news hasn't covered it that much. I think Fox News did a little story on it uh, last week. But God is moving in California. You think about what's happening in California right now with the governor shutting down churches and all the riots and the racial tensions. There's a move of God happening right now on the beaches in Orange County, California, where there are hundreds of people getting saved and baptized. People just flooding up to the front of these meetings, just falling on their face before God, repenting of their sin. Many of them committing their lives to Jesus, experiencing his love and his mercy for the very first time. It's happening now. And they're saying it's, it's almost just like that Jesus movement back in the 70s. One, one of the quotes from the leaders of this current movement, he says, it's eerily similar. Back then, there were protests, racial and social strife, but people were getting saved. A movement started in California that swept across America, and even major news outlets covered it. And it's, I'm telling you, it's happening now. God is doing something. God God is stirring people's hearts. Maybe you've felt something in your own life, just some kind of uneasiness, maybe some kind of stirring, some kind of expectation that maybe God wants to do something in your heart. He's moving people. He's doing something in me. He's doing something in Clayton and Mark and some members of my family, different church leaders across our city. I've heard it over and over again. God is doing something. He's starting to stir people under the noise and the screaming and the hatred and the chaos and the confusion. People all over are being moved, moved back to God, back to repentance, back to prayer, back to obedience to the spirit of God, it's happening. My question for you is, do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of it? Because if you do, something has to change. If I want to be a part of something God is doing, Something has to change in me. We can't keep doing the same things we've always done and then magically expect God to, to do something amazing among us, right? We have to change. It Starts in me and it starts in you. The, the world that we live in is changing. It, it's different today than it was a year ago. And guess what? It's not going back to the way it was. We're, we're living in a new era. God wants to do something new. The the world is changing. We have to change with it. I'm not talking about conformity. I'm talking about a renewed commitment to seek after God, to walk with Him, to obey Him. God is always working, He's always moving. And He's also always looking for people like you and like me, regular people, looking for people that are willing to join Him in that work. And He's looking now. He's looking for people that are willing to lay down everything, their belief systems, their ideologies, their prejudices, their their plans, people that are willing to be broken for their sin and put back together, people willing to read his word, to be devoted to prayer, to be obedient to his spirit, Listen, listen for his voice and be obedient, even if it makes me unpopular, even if I lose friends over it, even if I look stupid. We gotta change, something has to change. God wants to do something new in me. We have to, you know, when there's, when there's distance between us and God, guess what? That's not his problem, that's an us problem. Do you want to be a part of what God is about to do? Do you want God to do something new in your own life? Then the vessel Has to change. Have you heard the parable of the wine and the wineskins? They used to put wine in these wineskins. And Jesus has this powerful moment in Luke 5 where there's this group coming up to him asking, how come your disciples don't follow the same customs that John the Baptist's disciples did or whatever? They're asking specifically about fasting and some other Jewish customs, right? And so part of Jesus' answer to them in verse 37 is this. No one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst the wine skin, spilling the wine ruining the skins new wine must be stored in new wine skins but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine the old is just fine they say the old is just fine see jesus is trying to get them to see listen i'm the new wine like I came to start something new. Jesus was the new wine. Jesus came to, you know, for, to, to develop a new covenant between us and God, better than the old covenant, better than the Jewish customs and traditions. And he's warning them here of, of you know, the, 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 the possibility of us getting comfortable, being okay with the old wine. He's like, people that drink the old wine seem to, be, seem to not want the new wine. The old wine is just fine, they say. Listen, the old wine is not just fine. Jesus came to do something new. Jesus now wants to do something new. The the old way isn't fine anymore. The old way I've related to Jesus and you've related to Jesus and your relationship with him, your old way of just approaching faith, your old way of church, our old way of church, our relationship with God, it won't cut it anymore. He needs a new vessel. This is about you and I and our relationships with God, your relationship with Him, your faith. Not your spouse's faith, not your parents or your grandmama's faith, not what you did in high school or college or what you did last year, what God did through you last year or whatever. It's about now, your relationship with Him right now, today. What we were yesterday (laughs) isn't enough anymore. God is looking, I truly believe with everything I am, God is looking for people that are willing to join him in this new work, in this new era. We gotta get some of this right. I mean, I don't know what your relationship with God is like. Maybe your life is full of church attendance and and religious activity of some sort, but you know deep down you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you've been playing games, playing church, pretending. Maybe your whole Christian thing is just a facade, and deep down you know it. Listen, your first act today needs to be make that right. Don't waste another day. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, next month? It's time to bow your knee to the Savior. And admit that you can't count on yourself to, to bridge that gap between you and God to make your relationship right. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. God's standard is perfection. We are broken, sinful people from birth. The only thing that makes our relationship with God right is a relationship with Jesus. Putting our faith in Jesus, that He became sin for us. He became sin, became shame. He was tortured. Killed on a cross, he rose from the dead. Listen, it cost Jesus everything to have a relationship with you. He's been pursuing you every moment of your life. It's time to turn to him. Turn to him, repent of your sin, put your faith in Jesus for the payment of your fine. And then yes, you're gonna have eternity with him in heaven. Eternity is important. But also right now in this life, you begin a, a relationship with the living God. You have his spirit living inside of you. and He can help us navigate this crazy world that we live in. Otherwise, we're just walking blind. Or maybe you know you're secure. You're, you're a Christian. You're headed to heaven. But maybe you've drifted. I don't know how all this is coming across to you. Maybe it's, it's just like... Whatever, dude, can we get out of here? Or may, maybe it's sparking something in you. Listen to that. Lean into that. What is he wanting to do in you? What's he leading you to? I think it has to start with prayer and repentance. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon has just finished building the temple, the temple of God. This is Solomon, David's son, by the way. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know the Israelites had this pattern where from the moment they left Egypt and all the miracles that God did, they would continually fall into this pattern where they would turn away and then turn back and turn away and turn back. And it looked something like this. They, they would doubt God. They would stray from him and disobey him. Sometimes they'd even worship other gods. Then he would discipline them. They would experience pain. It would not go well for them. And eventually they would come around, they would repent, they would return to God, they would obey what God said, and he in turn would bless them and restore their relationship over and over and over and over. And Solomon, the temple's finished and he's dedicating the temple and he's praying to God, he's having a conversation with God and God tells him, listen, When people disobey, when they worship other gods, when they turn from me, things won't go well for them. But there is good news. In verse 14, God says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land draws a direct connection between, you know, in his relationship with his people, the Israelites, between prayer and repentance and turning back to God and him listening and answering. That's the key. And so to kind of put a bow on all of this, I really feel like God is calling us to new levels of a few different things. First of all, new levels of repentance New, when's the last time you were broken over your sin? Are you just treating sin just so casually and you know, it's it's all good. Treating your relationship with the living God so casually. Have you drifted? New levels of repentance. Being broken over our sin. You know, when Peter, the very end, Jesus had been arrested. And Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him, right? And Peter swore, No, there's no way I'm gonna deny you. There's no way I'm gonna turn my back on you. And of course, Jesus, he's in shackles, and Peter denies him three times. And when the rooster crowed, scripture tells us that their eyes met Jesus and Peter, their eyes met each other, and Peter was broken. He wept bitterly because when he looked in the eyes of Jesus and just saw Jesus' compassion and love and mercy, it broke him. And we we look in the eyes of Jesus and we see his, his love and compassion, his mercy. There's no other outcome than for us to be humbled and broken over our own sin. Maybe it's time for you today to turn around and look in the eyes of Jesus and be broken over our sin. We also need to be called to new levels of prayer. Prayer, like praying. I'm not talking about prayer before you eat or prayer before night nights, okay? I'm talking about a hunger for prayer, crying out to God in desperation, praying for your family, for your kids, for our our church, our, our leaders, this country like a burden for prayer. We aren't good at this one. We're too comfortable. We're starting to get uncomfortable. People are starting to be driven to their knees again in prayer. If you need help with this, man, we we have an app that has daily devos on it. Uh, Every day, worship songs to listen to, uh, scripture to read, things to pray through. Use that to kind of get you going. Come to Wednesday nights. We have city nights here, Wednesday nights at 6.30. We pray. We're praying through this exact same stuff every single week. Like, what does revival look like in me? What is God asking me to do? Praying for each other. If you don't feel comfortable coming, we're streaming that now on on our social media platforms. Man, tune in. You know, it doesn't look great, but we're doing it because we want people to be be able to be a part of what God is doing and, and pray and seek God with us. He's calling us to new levels of obedience, not just hear and just do things my way. Obedience. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us very, very plainly, if we hear but don't obey, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. We're like a man that looks in the mirror and sees his reflection and then we walk away and forget what we look like. Like we're living a lie. Don't be a hearer, be a a doer. As you're reading God's word and as you're praying and you're sensing his voice leading you, obey. Commit yourself to obedience. And then finally, and I really truly believe that God gave me this for us, new levels of community. Community, think about this. Where was David when he made the worst decision of his life? He, he was alone, he was alone. We weren't made to live our life in isolation. We weren't made to follow Jesus in isolation. We were made at the very core of who we are in our DNA, to follow Jesus in the the midst of community with, with other believers, doing life together, growing in our faith together. You and I desperately need people in our lives that have our backs, that can pick us up when we fall. And most importantly, and we don't like this one, but for accountability, people in our lives that will call us out when we start to drift. David needed that. You need that. I need that. We need community, intentional community. If you don't have that, we we have city groups. Join a group. I know it's difficult now. Some are meeting and some aren't and some are on Zoom and whatever, like, Find a group. I would love to help you find an an existing group. I would love even more to help you start one with your friends and your family. They need that. You need that. Reading the word together, praying for each other. Man, guys, this is where the rubber meets the road. We desperately need it. Mark's about to sing a song that talks about this very thing, just just asking God to bend us, asking God to to drive us to our knees, to refine us, and just crying out to God, God, send revival, and you can start in me. Even if no one else goes with me, God, start in me. And as he sings, I want to encourage you, just sit where you are. Just have a moment with God. Close your eyes and Ask God to search your heart. Ask ask God to show you what your next step is. Don't drift away right out of here and and leave this place and and never change and just forget what you heard. Put your feet down now and and say, I'm not drifting anymore. God, help me be intentional. What what are you calling me to do? What are you leading me to do? What are you trying to do in me? And before we do that, though, I want to go back to, David's prayer for repentance and just kind of as a first step for all of us. I, I really believe it starts, we got we to stay broken over. Right? we got to stay humble before God, repentant hearts before God. So I want to pray this prayer that David prayed for repentance. I want to pray it together. So it will be on the screen. I want to encourage you, say it out loud. Man, mean every word. Don't just, Don't just read it. But live it right now in this moment. Make it your prayer to him says create in me a clean heart O god renew a loyal spirit within me restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you unseal my lips O lord that my mouth may praise you you do not desire a sacrifice or i would give one you do not want a burnt offering the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. Amen.